The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. The Capital Weekly Podcast is a production of Open California and is sponsored by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Uh, greetings and welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I'm John Howard, and I'm joined by Tim Foster, my colleague. Hello. And our special guest today is Matt Rexrode, uh, the General Counsel of Redistricting Insights, which is a rel- relatively new outfit, but which uh, deals with all things redistricting. And that's why I wanted to chat with you today. Matt, thank you very much for being here. Good morning. Tell me, uh, I want some insight into redistricting. So tell me, what can we expect this year? Uh, what do you think we can expect this year with maps, say for Congress? I always lead off with Congress because there's speculation about we might lose a seat. What, what do you see out there? Well, for Congress, I mean, well, first of all, overall, the calendar and the different the stresses on the election calendar in California is a story I don't think is being told enough because we really do have some major issues with trying to get the data from the Census Bureau, which was impacted by the, um, by the pandemic. And then we have um, a primary in June that's set up right now, but we have a redistricting commission and some data issues that if everyone takes all of their time, I don't know how it is we're going to have a primary on June 7th. We also have some uncertainty with some litigation out of Alabama regarding privacy issues with the data. Um, It's a, a lot of that is in flux. Our first data point for the census should be at the end of this month when we deal with the apportionment issue and we find out how many um, districts California has for our congressional delegation. My guess is we're going to have 52, which would be a loss of one. It'll be the first time ever California has lost a seat. Um, but if we were to lose two because of that data uh, point or pick up three, then it would be an indication that we probably have problems with our data. And um, that'll, be our, that'll be our first tip of the hat to see what we've got. Can, can you tell who we're losing the seats to? Is it that simple? Is it, hey, Nevada's grabbing two of our seats or Utah's taking a couple or one or How's that work? Actually, it's the same. I'm, I, can, I, I know you all can't see it, but in terms of looking at a map, you know, our expectations are that you know, Texas is going to pick up some seats and you already see some candidates who are moving around in the state of Texas in hopes that they can run for that seat. But generally, the, the kind of Rust Belt where we've seen population declines over the past 20 years continues. Yep. But Texas, Florida, um, you know, Arizona, uh, Colorado are all expected to pick up seats. Mm-hmm. Is the... Um Population loss equal to the population that's covered in a district, in a congressional district's rep- representation. In other words, if we lose whatever that might be, I'm thinking maybe seven hundred thousand or six or seven hundred thousand people. Does that mean we lose one seat, or is it? Well, it's not that it's not that we've lost population. This is, should not feed into that whole idea that you know U-Hauls are taking people across the country and and planting them in these other states. We just haven't grown as fast as some of these other states. And, and I often get asked the question, you know, where will we lose the seat? And people in the Central Valley, you know, react in horror and say, oh, my gosh, I hope we don't lose the seat, uh, the congressional seat in the Central Valley or, you know, L.A. County or whatever. It's not like a trap door opens up and the seat just suddenly vanishes for, you know, 730,000 people. Um, districts move around a little bit. And, and I do think because L.A. County has not grown as fast as some of the counties surrounding it, and you're talking about a, a core group of 10 million people or so that um, we have a lot of districts in LA that haven't grown as fast. And it's unlikely that one of them, you know, just vanishes it, and, and that's not going to happen. But we have a bunch of seats like um, Congressman Garcia and Congressman McCarthy and um, uh, uh, 
Congresswoman Kim and Congressman Lowenthal, who all have seats that extend into other counties. Those are really more likely to be pushed out as opposed to anything else, just because you have the coast there that's kind of unforgiving and you have that core group of people kind of within 10 miles of the coast, 20 miles of the coast, where you haven't seen a lot of new housing stock in recent years. What about people that move? Uh, they don't leave the state, but they move from one part of California to another. We've been seeing a lot lately about the Bay Area folk, many people from the Bay Area not happy with any number of things. I would think housing costs, rents, and everything else. And they're going to other places. Some are going to El Dorado County, Placer County, Lake Tahoe. Um, does that change the political complexion of the places they're going to? Well, it does change the political complexion of where they're going to. And a perfect example of that is if you look historically at election patterns, you see that Mono County and Nevada County have changed in their politics in recent years with a lot of people moving to those areas. But in regards to the census and redistricting, um, the timing of the pandemic was very interesting um, and, and probably um, we were pretty lucky because the, the census was timed on April 1st of 2020. At that point, things like places like Cal Poly, UC Davis, UC Irvine didn't have a mass exodus of students yet. They were probably still there. So wherever they're counted very well, probably was an okay place. And a lot of those people we were seeing fleeing the Bay Area during the pandemic who moved to El Dorado, Sacramento, Placer counties, they hadn't gotten there yet. A lot of that, a lot of that movement hadn't really occurred. Had, it, had the census um, count date, date been July 1st or August 1st, it might have been very different. We'd have seen different outcomes. But I'm really curious, and I mentioned some of the college campuses, I'll be really curious to look at how some of those schools are counted um, and whether there were people who didn't respond to the census or um, weren't reflective of those. So that's one of my big question marks in terms of where those students are. There's an issue, too, a while back. Uh, about how you counted prison yes. inmates in the census. Uh, they may be, their home counties may be Los Angeles, for example, but they're incarcerated in Susanville, which just lots of prison, by the way, but they're incarcerated there. And so the question is, how do you count them? Well, the locals would like to count them as residents of their county, for example, because they would get, they could count towards federal funding or other programs. The Others say, no, they, L.A. should have a chance because they were from L.A. How's that? Was that ever resolved? Well, yes. Yeah. So um, actually, the new secretary of state, when she was in the legislature, um, uh, Secretary of State Weber, actually really pushed the idea that um, anyone in state prisons be returned, um, you know, basically try to apportion them back to where they were from. Uh-huh. Okay. The problem with that date, well, there's a couple things. One is the problem with that date is sometimes people are transient. We don't have an exact address where they live at a per certain address in Woodland, California, in this, in this census tract. So that's an issue. And the data is not perfect on that. But I actually, on, in regards to your, there are locals who would like the prisoners counted there. But if you think about the closer, closure of that prison that I saw today in the paper uh, up in Susanville, Think about a county like Lassen County. They only have like 20,000 people up there. If you have a 4,000 person prison, that's a whole supervisorial district. Yeah. You're talking about five. So, and how you count those, um, you know, they could end up with a supervisorial district that's all the population of a prison. And then three people who, are, who can vote there get to decide the supervisorial seats. And so that's true of Del Norte, uh, Lassen County, uh, well, Kings, Riverside, a lot of those counties where we have. Um, large prison populations are impacted by that. And so, um, and then yesterday, just yesterday, 
the state commission was arguing about what they do about federal prisoners. Because what you I think you had read about previously was about people in state um, institutions. Yeah. And now the question is federal prisoners. So in places like um, in Alameda County, I believe they have a federal prison. There's a couple others. How do you allocate those? And do you allocate them back to the states they came from? Because they may not they may not even be from California. They may need to they may have been sentenced in Nevada or New Jersey. And so that's an open question. And the commission had a really robust discussion on that yesterday. Now, another calculus there would be if those prisoners could vote. You know, I think Bernie Sanders has made some motions toward allowing people in prison to vote. I remember the big uh, talking point was, are you going to have the Sarnayev uh, brother that was the Boston bomber? He's going to get to vote. But I'm sure that the, the calculus would be a lot different about counting those prisoners in, you know, well, no longer Susanville. But if there's all those prisoners, suddenly they could be a large voting block, assuming that they voted it all the same. And I would think the locals would very have a very different opinion about whether or not you should be apportioning them to that district if they could actually vote in that district. Well, and it's my understanding that um, people who are in county jails um, don't get reapportioned back to where they're from. And that's interesting when you think about AB 109 sentencing reform, because we ended up with these reallocation of prisoners who sometimes are serving longer in county jails for nonviolent crimes. Um, They might spend three, five, seven, eight years in county jail now, whereas they used to, the max time was a year. So that's another wrinkle in the puzzle where the, the, sentiment of the idea that Secretary of State Weber um, was intending was to send those people back because they should be apportioned back to where they're from. But I don't think it applies to um, county jails at this time. You know, we talk about uh, redistricting, uh, at least in Sacramento, we do state stories on redistricting, and there always seem to be the legislature, um, members of Congress, the congressional districts, and maybe the Board of Equalization gets thrown in there too. But there are lots and lots and lots of local districts out there that get affected by redistricting as well. Is, is that right? I mean, I'm thinking we've got 475 something cities and we've got 58 counties and are all of these subject to redistricting as well or are they not? They are. And I know you had uh, Paul Mitchell on recently. He and I are doing San Bernardino County together. Uh, Paul's working on a number of other local jurisdictions, but because of the California Voting Rights Act and other changes, you have all of the things you mentioned, counties, cities, you have school districts, special districts, um, all which are going to redistricting. And there are a lot of projects right now um, that are out there. And the reality is there's not a lot of, there's not enough people to be able to help draw these lines. So that's something that's, uh, well, it's, 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 it's a great problem to have if you're in the redistricting business, but um, and some of these local governments are gonna have a problem meeting deadlines at the end. Do those districts come through the redistricting commission? I'm talking about the local ones now. Well, or no, that's handled so separately? They do it entirely differently. So the, uh, under the um, California has some specific provisions for cities and counties, but school districts, um, community college boards, all of those, um, they have a, a little bit of a different process, but largely it's um, basically just like passing any other ordinance. They do that locally. Mm-hmm. You know, I was looking at some of the districts. It just struck me. There's this giant layer cake going on here with, um, you know, if you pick a city that you live in, um, you, you live in Brawley. So you're in somebody's city council district, if it's an incorporated, you are in somebody's supervisorial district, you're in somebody's assembly district, you're in a Senate district, you're in one of the four board of equalization districts, you're in a congressional district. So my question is with these 
overlapping jurisdictions is writing a map for one of them, do you have to take into account the other political jurisdictions or do you just work in one separate by separate? No, and if you look, actually, I think you left some off the list. If when when, when I go to on political school districts, if the I mosquito to, abatement district, yeah, there's a whole bunch of them. And so, like when I go on political data, well, actually, when I used to be allowed to go on political data, but since I'm more conservative, they won't allow me on their platform. Um, uh, that's a whole other topic. But when I could go on political data, I'd pull up John Howard, and there'd be every list of district you were in. And um, but wow. in terms of how that works generally communities of interest should be kept together and you would think those would be reflective throughout the different maps. But sometimes when you get to really large board of equalization districts, it's hard to argue, you know, for a specific community of interest, you're talking about a quarter of the state of California, right? So it's really broad brushes. And those districts rarely do we end up where people are talking about dog parks or really local, you know, where people go to worship or things like that. It's much broader on ethnicity and population base and county lines and things like that. You know, the commission made uh, a little non-redistricting news. This would have been in February, I think, middle to end of February. Daniel Claypool, the exec director, resigned, and pretty abruptly so. Everybody I saw said it was kind of, they were surprised by it. Uh, what do you, can you give us some insight as to what happened there? What's your take on what was going on there? Well, I, I don't know exactly what happened, but, you know, this commission is a, a it, it's an, a very different um, set of circumstances. First of all, most of these commissioners have never met each other before in person. Uh, they've been, we had one commission meeting early on in the process where I believe um, Commissioner Ahmad, Commissioner Fornachari, and Commissioner Anderson were actually in Sacramento at the same time. Everyone else has been on Zoom. And so if you look at the, just the interpersonal dynamics of small groups, I, I think that um, the role of, of Zoom and, and these, you know, virtual meetings has really changed a lot of the way they do things. Um, you know, I actually, uh, some people were seem to be almost gleeful that Claypool was no longer there. I was not one of them. I think that he had a lot of lessons learned from 10 years prior. And I actually don't think he, he'd probably still be there if it wasn't for this enormous census delay because they needed to get things going. Um, but this commission is, uh, is unlike a lot of other local governments where you have, um, you might have a one member or two new members on a city council at one time. You have 14 new members all at the same time. Uh, they've never done this before. And by default, very few of them have been in any kind of elected office. I believe that Commissioner Sinai, maybe one other have been, oh, uh, Commissioner Fernandez from Sacramento have actually been on a school board. But other than that, they've never served in elective office. So they have to learn a lot of this stuff about um, well, working with other people, which we're seeing on, you know, basically online and watching, and then they're building a whole new infrastructure kind of every time. So they've had to hire a lot of people. They've lost Claypool. They lost their initial general counsel. And there are some growing pains as they're getting to know each other. But overall, I'll have to tell you that I, I am very impressed by this group of commissioners. I do think they need to work on some of their openness and transparency issues. But overall, um, there are some superstars on this commission, and, and uh, I'm glad some of them are there. Is there a, a procedure in place to replace, uh, say, an executive director or a general counsel? Or is that something the board, like other boards, do? You know, they replace an officer, they vote on it. How, you know how that works at the commission? Well, I'm quite confident that it's simply like a city council hiring a city manager or a county administrative officer. And, um, you know, the board is really kind of 
to some extent, really trying to figure out what their role is. And they seem very reluctant to delegate to an experienced administrator. And, and I would think that, you know, having served in elected office for a long time, the most important decision you make is who your city manager, or your county administrator is. It's really important. And this commission seems to be really unwilling to kind of delegate authority to them. They, they have argued about the exact URL they were going to use for their website. They talk about all kinds of different things, which I consider minutia, that they need to be talking about, you know, governing and going through this process and get out of some of these other things. But that's, that's I would view them as an overly active micromanaging board at this point. But I think eventually they're going to figure that out. Mm-hmm. Do you miss being in public office? You're a Yolo County supervisor. I, I looked up some of the, I looked some comments about you from various people. Uh, they're amazing. I, could, I couldn't do it. You couldn't get me to run for office and some of I mean, so... You know, I, what was I, your take? I loved being the mayor of Woodland. I thoroughly enjoyed the people I work with, worked with on the board of supervisors in Yolo County, but I got out at just the right time, right? Right before <laughs> the pandemic, uh, I, um, it was, um, you know, my daughter was just starting high school. My son's, you know, in eighth grade. And I, um, it's actually been, it was a really good timing to get out of it. But I, re- I do miss from time to time. I miss the camaraderie of a lot of the people that I work with, but yeah. I was losing my patience with some of the people in my community and some of those things. And, you know, you've got to be able to, to do that. And actually, the commission is kind of dealing with that right now. They're not getting a lot of as many public comments as they will later on. But I hope they have their patience hat on because they're going to need it. Well, you know, it's a different dynamic now, I think. Uh you know, you, in years past, you'd go to a public hearing, you'd hold a public hearing or appear at a public meeting, and people would talk to you and ask questions and decide whether they liked you or not based on your answers. You know, I mean, it's pretty conventional. Yeah. But now you're dealing with the echo chamber, social media, retweet. It's like your direct contact with a voter. It sort of gets filtered through seven or eight different levels, and it, it gets all meshed up, you know? Well, you know, I talk a lot of people out of running for office. I mean, I run political campaigns um, and you know, we'll do that in 2022, I would imagine. And, and um, I, you know, I do do that. And some people just have to be tough skinned about that. And that's something else that comes from experience. I, I, you know, when some of these commissioners eventually get blistered by the public on social media, and some of them are very active on Twitter and other places, it's probably going to sting for them a little bit more than it would for somebody who's been in the assembly for six years who doesn't care and sleeps fine. Do we have any uh, cities left, uh, at least major cities left, that have at-large elections as opposed to district by district? Very few. And the California Voting Rights Act is, has, has, and I actually, as an attorney, I, I initiated um, the process to, to move Davis with, on behalf of clients uh, in Davis and Chico to move to district elections. And there's a couple other cities out there, but it's, it's very few. Everyone's going to district do you think that's a better process, district by district, as opposed to at large? Well, I'm torn on that. I mean, the, the law is the law. It's very clear. But, um, you know, and some cities are just so small. And I, the example I would give you would be Winters, California, which is here in Yolo County. It'd be crazy to try to draw five districts in a community that small. It doesn't give you, they don't, we don't, they don't have enough, I mean, not to disparage the Winter City Council, but you know, we need good candidates running for local office. And if you start trying to district it up, I think you, in, dist- in cities that small, um, you end up causing problems. But, the, you know, in the city of West Sacramento, there's been a lot of people who have talked about them moving to district elections at some point. So far, they haven't. They're probably the largest 
city in the Sacramento region that hasn't gone to districts, but they've had a very uh, a city council that's very reflective of the community. And if you don't have district by district, then you're violating this the Voting Rights Act? If, if you have a history of racially polarized voting, which almost every community in California has. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, kind of looking ahead, mm-hmm. um, how do you see the... the how do you see the elections playing out in 2022 as it relates to Congress? First Congress, I'm very interested in Congress. I don't know that the delegation mix is going to change, the numbers are going to mix, but they might. Do you get any, you get any signals yet of how that, in terms of the reco- maybe the Republicans recovering seats they lost or vice versa? Do you get some signals about how that may play out? Well, I don't know that because we don't, there's a lot of, um, determining factors on that. So one is, as this election calendar gets compacted, where you have people who have to figure out where they're running, get on the ballot, run, and all of that uncertainty favors incumbents. So incumbents end up winning by that uncertainty. Um, the other part of it is, is that we always have um, a lot of congressional retirements right after a redistricting. And so those retirements um, will change a lot of things in terms of the number of people that are retired. I think last time we had about 10 or 12 uh, members of Congress retire at redistricting. And we have quite a few members, and not that they're not loved, but we have quite a few members of our congressional delegation that are over 70 years old. And those tend, that age just tends to be a factor related to the likelihood of them retiring, um, especially after redistricting. And so I think those open seats are going to play a big role. But most of the new, you know, the Republican delegation is actually fairly young. And, you know, the last time when we had, um, right after redistricting, we had a presidential election with a large turnout. Um, Lower turnout elections tend to favor Republicans, especially in gubernatorial years. And so I would guess that if there's a map that's somewhat similar to where it is right now, and Gavin Newsom is seeking re-election as governor, and I, I would say, you know, if he was, you know, if he if he beats this recall, it's likely to be a fairly... Um, lower turnout, unenthusiastic election during that time, and Republicans would tend to do very well the way things are set up right now. On the recall, um, you think it's real? It hasn't made the ballot yet. They say they have enough signatures, assuming it makes the ballot. Uh, My thought has always been it's going nowhere. But if maybe real now, what's your take on it? Well, I always thought that they would get the signatures. And I actually, I actually, I take that back. I didn't necessarily, I wasn't really sure. And, and until a lot of the professionals got involved in towards the end. And when that happened, I thought, well, the way they're going to get it. But I, I've yet to see any data point and the data I'm looking at around the state that indicates the recall would, would actually happen. So I don't know. And, and it seemed, people seem to have forgotten about the idea that Governor Newsom gets to raise money in unlimited chunks, basically, to fight this recall. And, uh, you know, Jim DeBoo and some of these other people in his office are really smart. And I don't think they're going to spend it all. And the governor could end up sitting on a fairly large nest egg when this thing's all over and having beat the recall. So he could use that money if he has money left over from the recall. He could then use that uh, for his reelection campaign. That's a wrinkle I hadn't really thought about. It's limited, um, and I think I believe that if you look back, I think that Jeff Denham had an awful lot of money left over from a recall against him when he was a state senator, and that allowed him to run for Congress. We we haven't published the story yet, uh, but we, we've counted up about eight million, uh, eight million and some change from on both sides so far in recall money, as opposed as you know identified by the Secretary of State. Might be a little more if you talk to people who, you know, claim different numbers, but. 
but that's even before it's on the ballot. So it's already in the multi-million dollar stage and it's just going, you know. Um, but yeah, the, this recall thing is going to be, um, it, it, it's going to be interesting the way it goes, but I think that, um, I think some of the people in the governor's office are smart and I think if they play their cards right, um, it should be okay. But I've been looking at polling around the state from many different sources and I don't see an indication yet that the governor is going to be recalled. Yeah. So you don't really see uh, Mary Carey's entry into the race as a big threat to Governor Newsom? Well, I mean, I know we've all been waiting. Um, actually, I haven't been waiting. You may have, Tim, but I have not been waiting. I saw a quote from her that said, uh, before she was lying on her back, but this time she wants to be on top. Mm. That's a good quote for a porn star. So. No, I'll pass on that. I won't comment on that anyway. Matt Rexroad, thank you so much. Thanks for chatting today with us. This is a lot of fun. Thanks for having uh, me. Have a great day. Be safe. Matt Rexroad, thank you very much for being with us today. And Tim and I would now like to turn to a new feature. We did this once before a while back in our roundup, but we wanted to start a new thing for the podcast. And that's called Who Had the Worst Week in California? Looking at political folk and government folk. And this time it was an easy call. We came up with Dominic Fapoe, the mayor of Windsor. Uh, if anybody had a bad week, he did. He had a bad week last week, but this week. Although, although John, I got to say, I don't know, did he have the worst week or did the city council that has to deal with him and, and his constituents have the worst week? I, you could make the argument that yeah, his week was better than theirs. Yeah. Uh, well, I, if you had to pick somebody out, I clearly the mayor uh, being hit with at least five allegations of sexual misconduct, serious sexual misconduct over a period of years. Four of the women are publicly identified and have been identified in news reports. One has not. Um, I think what makes it worse for him is that a number of officials in surrounding communities uh, in Windsor, which is in Sonoma County, by the way, have asked him to step down. And the his own city council isn't sure what happens now if he doesn't step down. How does that play out? Is that a recall? Does the Sonoma County Board of Supervisors somehow get into play here? Um, definitely, Tim, this is not the best week for Dominic Fopoli. No, and I, and I also saw that uh, there was an interview with, a very brief interview with the governor, who, of course, made money in the wine industry, was very involved in the wine industry, and he, uh, yeah. he said he didn't know anything about it, which... Uh, you know, I guess he has other fish to fry, but uh, one would think he would be somewhat aware of that. But uh, yet, and this is, it's interesting to watch all the repercussions of this. Obviously, the actual allegations are horrific and scandalous. But then also there's the backstory that the, the media organizations in that region have been very, they've been having problems with the way this story was, was A, reported and B, not reported. This, because many of these allegations go back years. Years yeah. and years. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. The um, editor of the Press Democrat uh, is based in, San, in uh, Santa Rosa. Uh, he's also the content director, I think his title is. He wrote an unusual letter, public letter, to his readers, uh, saying, "Hey, they drop the ball on this. They'll do more. Uh, they'll do more in the future to make sure they don't miss stories like this. They're going to hire some investigative reporters." Um, to help out with this. And, and so the Chronicle came in uh, basically and took the story away from right from under their nose, which is always embarrassing uh, to any newspaper, and especially the Press Democrat, which is a first-rate newspaper. It's a small paper, one of the best in the country, Pulitzer Prize winner for its fire coverage. Uh, it's really an outstanding small paper. So they've reacted quickly. They want to get back in the story. Obviously, the Chronicle wants to own the story. 
and they've been beating it like a gong uh, for the last few days and will continue to do so. And at the center of all this is uh, Mr. Fapoli, uh, who seems to be having a worse day than the one before as we progress through this story. Yeah, I mean, so, uh, yeah, it was an easy call this week, I would say. And so now, uh, you know, assuming our listeners enjoy this at all, we'll, uh, we'll try to do this every week. We used to do it in the roundup. I guess it was probably a year that we did this at the end of every week. We'd, we'd try to figure out who had the worst week. And, yeah. and uh, you know what? And if nobody likes it, we may continue doing it because it's kind of fun. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> so, so the, you know, the, the story is that on Twitter, every day there is a new, there's a character, there's a sort of a star of Twitter. And your goal on, if you're on Twitter is to never be that star because <laughs> it's never, <laughs> it's never good. And so, uh, you know, we'll, we'll give uh, all of our, our readers and uh, the people that we follow, their goal can never to be never on the uh, Capitol Weekly's worst week uh, in California politics list. Uh, so, so if you're a politician out there, that you have a new goal. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Hey, well, thanks to our listeners, and uh, and we'll talk to you soon. And this is uh, John Howard saying thank you very much. We'll see you next time around. Take care. The Capitol Weekly podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.